Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to The Daily Break, brought to you by Newsweek. Filling in for Andrew Tallman, I'm Jesse Edwards. And I'm Maura Curry. Today we're checking in with Newsweek editor-at-large and former double agent who wrote the book, How to Catch a Russian Spy, our very own Naveed Jamali. Naveed, you've been a really busy guy lately. How the heck are you, sir? Tired. <laughs> in a word, tired. I don't blame you. <laughs> it's Listen, this has been an interesting time. We're all living through, you know, uh, both a sad and a, an historical event at the same time. So I think it weighs on all of us. But, you know, uh, that's the name of the game, I guess. So what is your fresh hot take on this? What's going on in Putin's head right now from your professional point of view? In simple terms, I think that this is a vanity project by Vladimir Putin. I don't think there's any, there's no logical reason that he needs to be in Russia, in, in Ukraine. I mean, there's just, it benefit, it does not benefit Russia at all. The only person that seems to be committed to this is Vladimir Putin. So the question, Jesse, really is, what is in Vladimir Putin's mind in terms of an endgame? What does he need to achieve in order to be able to stop? And it's not clear. There's no logical reason that he's there. And so if there's no logical reason that he's there, then there's only a reason that he, Vladimir Putin knows. And, you know, we can basically try and guess it. But until he reaches that point internally where he thinks it's appropriate to pull back, this is going to keep going on. And, and until we get to that moment, you know, it's a really dangerous time. If you were to approach the average American on the street right now and tell them one thing that will help them better understand what is going on with Russia and Ukraine, what would it be? And it sounds like the answer is that you cannot logic anything Vladimir Putin is doing. It, he's not ascribing to the rules of logic as diplomats tend to understand it. In a weird way, his illogical approach is almost logical, if that makes sense. So the way to look at this is that it's not he's not thinking about what's in the benefit of Russia or the Russian people or Russian prestige or, you know, Russian, you know, position in the world order. He's not thinking about any of that. He's thinking about something that is beneficial to him. And there's a lot of speculation of his health. You know, he just turned 70. He's been in there for 22 years. I got to say more. I think that this is really, you know, to tell an average American, I think that the point is Putin is there because this is some, in some twisted way, some part of his legacy. And I think he wants to achieve something as part of their legacy because there's no, there's no gosh darn reason for him logically as the president of Russia to be doing this. It doesn't benefit Russia in any way, shape or form. We've all seen the pictures of him sitting at these 20 foot long tables. Uh, is he really that afraid of his own people? Is there a chance that he, he could be possibly assassinated by someone in his own cabinet? You know, there's always a pot. The possibility is never zero, especially to these days, you know, with with all these oligarchs losing money. But the reality, Jesse, you're, you're absolutely right to ask this is he's a paranoid guy. What's the first thing someone who tells a joke in Russia does is look over their shoulder. I mean, this is this is what we're talking about. He is an authoritarian. He is uh, he has no peers. Right. There's no one in his cabinet who can come up to him and be like. Hey, hey, Vladimir, you know, maybe this isn't a, a wise move. I mean, we saw the videos of him talking to his government. They look terrified. 
They looked like they were basically hostages. You wanted them to blink to let us know that they were okay. So if you don't have that, if you don't have anyone who's a peer, anyone who can tell you honestly that you're making a mistake, then you're all in your head. And man, that's just, again, I just go back to that point. It's just a dangerous, dangerous time. And so juxtapose that with President Zelensky of Ukraine's approach, um, which, which I think, at least observing on Twitter, he's doing a lot of very noble looking and sounding, you know, walking around Kiev and, and winking at the camera um, and, and not being afraid of what we are told is multiple attempts every day on his life. Um, what do you make of his positioning? I think that's a great way of putting it more. I mean, like, you know, the reality is that the Ukrainians have out information operation the Russians. So the Russians who invented disinformation, <laughs> really, you know, perfected <laughs> propaganda. And I'm not to say that the, you know, I don't understand what the Ukrainians are doing this, but I got to tell you, a lot of the stuff that Ukrainians are saying, it's like, it's like the Snake Island thing. We're like, oh, these people, you know, they, they went against a Russian warship and, and they all died. And it turns out, well, actually, they surrender without following a sh- firing a shot. But it became such a great internet thing that people believed. And I think Zelensky and the Ukrainian government has, has been masterful about this. Look, the only reason Zelensky is, and the Ukrainians are still keeping, uh, you know, pushing the Russians, I don't want to say back, but at least keeping them at bay, is because they believe in Zelensky. And if people didn't believe in Zelensky, it would all come crumbling down. I, I truly believe that. And to Zelensky, because he's a charismatic leader, because he's, you know, he's kind of this young, you know, a- athletic and energetic, you know, leader. And his messaging is, is just is, is phenomenal. And the Russians just can't compete with that. And the Ukrainian and look, the world eats it up and, and rightfully so. I mean, they, he deserves these accolades. But let's make no mistake that this is clearly by design, that this is clearly a way to keep that administration in power. And as long as Zelensky is still in power, the Russians literally will never achieve Putin's strategic goal of essentially, you know, making the Ukrainian people submissive. Zelensky was quoted today saying that Ukraine must admit that it won't join NATO. Is he backpedaling here a little bit, capitulating, negotiating? What do you see this as? I think Zelensky's, you know, look, the reality about Ukraine, besides the fact that all these images that evoke in tremendous emotion and sympathy, which they should, are coming out, I think Ukraine, as we all can understand, is in a really, really difficult position. You don't ask to negotiate if you're if you're winning. You don't ask for a no-fly zone if you're winning. You don't ask for more fighter jets if you're winning. And I think that, you know, Zelensky's on one hand has to project power, which, you know, because he's got to keep his government together. He's got to keep the people, you know, together. But on the other hand, he's looking, he too, like the Russians and perhaps even a little bit like Putin are, are looking for a way out of this. So, yeah, I mean, he's got to have some level of capitulation without basically surrendering. That's this fine line that he's walking. But, you know, he's going to have to give something to to Putin. There's no way that the Ukrainians are going to push the Russians out of Ukraine uh, militarily. It just doesn't seem conceivable, even though they're drawing tremendous blood from the Russians and the Russians are not mm-hmm. doing well. Yeah, I, I think the surprise has been predominantly that the Russians have done far worse at this um, than than maybe the Western world would have expected. Um, and I, I think uh, your reporting and the reporting of lots of other folks on the foreign affairs circuit has, you know, alluded to the fact that American intelligence is pretty pleased, actually, with with Russia's performance because it is so much less than they would have led us to believe. It really is. It's like these stories are almost too good to be true. And, 
you know, the story about the Russians like asking the Chinese for MREs because their their troops don't have food. I mean, this is the you know this is supposed to be this insanely you know a, a military that's you know meant to best the United States, and they can't even feed their troops. I mean, it's absurd, and clearly they didn't plan for this. You know, we uh, one of our one of our Newsweek colleagues was telling us um, that when he was in Moscow and he was talking to actual members of the Russian government before the invasion, they were telling him they're like. Hey, we expect seventy percent of the Ukrainian officer corps to, to to defect, and we expect to be treated as liberators. People really believe this. They completely, <laughs> completely misjudge the Ukrainians. They're well to fight, and frankly, I think they misjudged how good the Russians are, and which is they're kind of mediocre. You know, it really makes you rethink. Like, if this is the best, like, how bad is number two or three? It's one of those things that I shudder to imagine, and also, you know. Uh, shudder to find out (laughs) right like there's no situation where i want to know who the number two or three are but i think it is at least useful from the american intelligence standpoint right to understand that this if this specter has underperformed so dramatically you know what's going on in china you know how accurate is our information broadly yeah i mean what would happen if the chinese went to taiwan would they ask russia for utensils i mean what's you know (laughs) what are they unprepared for but i do think look we need to also take a step back and say yes the russians are underperforming but even underperforming their their attacks have been devastating to ukraine and its people i mean there's and in fact and in fact you know the the use of illegal munitions and just whether it's the ukrainians or the russians or both but like you know clearly people are suffering and dying and it's just you know it's a horrible horrible thing there's no but to that i mean it is Mm -hmm. you know there is a point to that uh when it comes to understanding the russians and when it comes to understanding the chinese i think everyone is looking at this and there's a lot of reassessment going on i see you know we see the increase in NATO countries and European countries and even uh, elsewhere purchasing, looking to purchase big weapon systems. And, you know, there is a fear in spite of the fact that Russia is not performing well, Mora, I think that there is a fear that is beyond that. And the fear is that all bets are off when it comes to this idea that one country won't invade another. So we might be concerned about what it means in terms of China's performance. But does this mean that China would still not invade Taiwan? There's a there's a pro and there's you know, one side that would say, yes, it does. And another side that says, no, it hasn't changed. But the reality is that with Russia underperforming, the biggest thing that I think most countries and the world is looking at is this idea of this resetting of the world order, right? This idea that emerged from the second world war that said one country was not going to, you know, just invade another, that we would take things to the United Nations. We try to settle differences without war. And Russia has completely thrown out the window. So what does that mean for the rest of the world? And even if countries underperform and they're not as successful in that invasion, does that not mean that they now see an opportunity to do so? Does it also mean with Russia contracting? I mean, we saw attacks by Iran in, you know, uh, a few nights ago. And it 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 begs the question, and when, we were t- when I was talking to uh, the former ambassador, Israeli ambassador of the United Nations, you know, he, he was saying that perhaps the Iranians see that Russia's contraction in the world stage has created a vacuum and they're trying to step in. So I still think this is a really, again, I keep imagining, really, really dangerous time. And even though the Russians have not done well, um, they've completely destroyed the post-World War II order. That's that's gone. It's hard to imagine that you can put that, you know, back in the bottle, so to speak. 
Well, your unique uh, point of view on this specific topic has been sorely missed on the daily break because you've been so damn busy, but I know that kind of leads to your big announcement. You've got something else happening here at Newsweek Podcast. You want to tell the audience about that? One of the things that I've always wanted to do is be able to take a subject and talk more in depth and actually bring on guests and talk a little longer with them. It's, I think this is such an important time to give different points of views a chance to get some attention. And, you know, one of the things coming out of Ukraine that I think ties into my next announcement, which is we want to be unconventional. We need to look at unconventional points of views because that's this is all new territory, my friends. And we really need to, you know, understand what that means. And so I'm really excited that we're going to be doing a new podcast called Declassified. And the focus really will be this longer term kind of getting into topics with with people and having a chance to really explore them and bring in some different perspective. And and look, this is a new world. Um, I think it's worth sort of understanding what that means for so many things and having different perspectives. So super excited to be able to do declassified starting in the next few weeks. And I, I hope you guys will all tune in. I'm sure our listeners are waiting to hear that. And I look forward to it myself. Naveed, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great hearing your voice again, sir. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Naveed. And be sure to stay tuned over at newsweek.com forward slash podcasts for Declassified with Naveed Jamali, which should be out on the shelf within the next couple of weeks. We will keep you up to date on that. And consider subscribing to our digital and print editions of newsweek.com if you haven't already. I'm Jesse Edwards. And I'm Maura Curry. And this has been The Daily Break, brought to you by Newsweek. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.